0: Welcome to Council Culture, the Business of Law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Welcome back to Council Culture, the Business of Law podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by Mark Stevens, uh, partner and founder of Howard Kennedy. Hello, Mark. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, it's a very special week. We're meeting today at the ABA. Uh, it's the end of the week, actually, at the ABA, it's been a very long and busy week. How's it? has how's that been for you?
1: It's been fabulous, and we've had a lot of difficult and complex issues. Um, yeah. Israel-Gaza, for example, the head of the Palestinian bar was killed a, a week, 10 days ago. And, of course, uh, we've had Karim Khan, the International Criminal Court's prosecutor here, talking about the sort of evidence he needs in order to prosecute uh, crimes, both uh, potentially in Israel-Palestine, but also in Ukraine and Russia and the other many other conflicts around the world.
0: Yeah, so it's been really busy, as you said. I mean, we've had some really good guests, actually, uh, from Michel Barnier, the Brexit negotiator, to, uh, the yeah, I mean, prisoners. he was he
1: was fabulous in the way he, he, he explained how he'd completely potted the British <laughs> uh, and how the British negotiation team was completely underpowered uh, and not across their brief because they kept changing negotiators. So he had to negotiate with four different people. Um, and uh, of course, he was always going to win. And uh, it was almost an embarrassment to sit there and hear the truth. Yeah, I,
0: I think it must have been for quite a few British. <laughs>
1: in the crowd but yeah no we've had uh, a really good week overall Um, and I mean you know Heli Thoring Smith, the uh, current uh, the former head of uh, Prime Minister of Denmark is speaking uh, as we speak actually uh, and she's been talking about the meta oversight board and trust and transparency in social media and artificial intelligence and of course artificial intelligence has been a a theme through the whole week as has uh, the UN government principles on business and human rights, ESG, uh, those sorts of developments in society which are affecting all of us as lawyers in our practice, but also all of us as human beings, uh, as residents of planet Earth.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's been a big theme this week. Everyone's been attending these AI uh, sessions. Uh, I think lots of people are kind of They want to understand it better. I think
1: that's that's the key point at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the debate is uh, at some levels very informed. So there are real experts here, and of course, uh, President uh, Amadina has put together an AI task force to develop strategy and uh, regulation in the legal profession uh, for the use of AI, and also uh, to help educate lawyers. But of course, one of the challenges is until you've used it, you don't really understand it and uh, a lot of the older men yeah. seem to have uh, not not played with it, but have very strong views about it. Um, luckily, the panels have been significantly more informed.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, talking about the so you've been associated with it uh, for a really long time. I think you took up a new role last year, if, if that's correct. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, I was, I was appointed co-chair of the Human Rights Institute of the IBA uh, last year. Uh, I was proposed by the former president, uh, Sternford Moyo from Zimbabwe. But I've been attending the IBA consistently and since the late 80s when I was invited to come and speak on intellectual property which is probably the area for which I started out in life but it was an amazing opportunity because I suddenly this whole world opened up to me where People were looking at the law in a more international way, which struck and resonated with me. So, for example, at uh, the Boston conference in 1990, uh, I was trained in trial observations by uh, Justice Michael Kirby, who was then a first instance judge in Australia. And of course, he went on to become uh, the top of the High Court of Australia, their Supreme Court. And similarly, at the same uh, conference. I was uh, on a panel with Mr. Justice Callanan, and he also went to the Supreme Court. And you get this opportunity to mix and mingle with the very best. So I was with some African judges yesterday. I was with um, uh, people who make policy in relation to legal matters, politicians, legal politicians. And it's really an opportunity to Find out what's going on at the cutting edge, and also to talk to and inform yourself, but also to inform those who are going to be making regulations for us. And it's it's a, it's an amazing opportunity, and I feel enriched every time I go home. Every time I go back to my practice, a private practice, I am able to go back with a sort of positive cornucopia of new ideas and enthusiasms which I can then spread out and trickle down across the practice.
0: Um, You mentioned you've been going since the 80s. What would be the main differences if you compare one of the ideas back then to now? How far has it come over the years, do you think?
1: I guess back in the early, uh, the late eighties, it was about eight hundred to a thousand people. Now okay. it's five to six thousand, yeah. and th- so it's scaled in an enormous way. And that's really about developing the richness and the depth of knowledge and where people come from. Yeah. Uh, so that's been an amazing yeah. development. It does make it slightly more intimidating to come as a first timer, <laughs> but Agreed. one of the things that you um, you get to learn fairly quickly is once you embed with the committee with your area of expertise or your area of interest or interests because you can do more than one then you start to find like-minded people on the international stage and you have that ability to uh, then build those bonds of friendship so Uh, you know, I talked earlier about Michael Kirby um, uh, teaching me on uh, trial observations back in uh, 90s. And since then, I've taught trial observations myself and had Michael Kirby come and work as a judge. And he's also been the co-chair of the Human Rights Institute. And so you get to see people working in a very different way. You build relationships that perhaps you wouldn't otherwise. And I've become very interested uh, in um, the work of uh, taking legal cases around the world to decriminalise uh, consenting adult gay love, homosexuality, if you will. Mm. Um, and I was inspired to do that because of the work of the IBA, of my being at the IBA, because often uh, I suddenly discovered that gay men or women can't really bring their own challenges against these laws yeah. in the countries where it's criminal. Yeah. And so as an ally, one has to go in and uh, and take those cases. And so um, last year, I worked on a, a case in Botswana, and now mm-hmm. Botswana has decriminalized. Um, colleagues and friends from around the world are working on cases, you know, in Belize. And we have seen, so we saw uh, a case that was lost in Singapore, but Singapore then changed its law by statute, which I think was not unconnected to the legal challenge. And so you see the opportunity to do good throughout the world. And all we're doing is invoking the existing non-discrimination provisions that are contained with pretty much every uh, national and international charter of rights or constitution. And so it does seem to me that you can have a much broader impact on the lives of individuals as you go forward
0: definitely and i think um i mean this is my first IBA, um and it was overwhelming with the amount of people (laughs) that you just don't know where they're from and so you discover as you speak to them but you know i've been fascinating fascinated by the kind of the quality of people that go but also all the varied expertise that they come with uh is just really incredible i mean we've met people from the american red cross uh, in the legal team there, we met yesterday, I met someone that has their own immigration practice, but for uh, startups in the Silicon Valley and that kind of stuff. And it's just, you would never meet that anywhere else, really. So it's really fascinating. And I
1: think one of the things that's really impressive is not only are you meeting people who are in your areas of interest and expertise. yeah uh, at a very high level but you're also meeting people who are in allied areas and very often you'll see um, different groups coming together so there's a panel today on strategic lawsuits against public participation and you've got the Bar Issues Commission you've got uh, the Human Rights Institute and you've got other parts of the IBA specialist committees you know the Media Law Committee for example who are coming in and joining together so you find that there are many cross-cutting issues on which lawyers can make common calls and to learn from one another, because it's not always the developments in your space that are going to impact on your practice and your client's practice.
0: Definitely. Mentioning Slaps just now, uh, you're speaking on a panel literally, you know, half an hour <laughs> about that. Um, so... What's the status currently of anti-SLEP initiatives in the UK and what should happen next?
1: So, I mean, let's start with what is a slap. So strategic lawsuits against public participation are essentially lawsuits often, and they often started in the sort of libel defamation area, but they now have spread to all sorts of areas. And they are essentially abusive in the sense that they're brought, uh, not really to seek a remedy, but rather to destroy your opponent um, so it might be an individual newspaper but it's much more likely to be an academic who's writing a paper that yes. somebody doesn't like or an NGO or something of that kind and what they want to do is to silence the criticism of the behaviours and yes. so um, there's a sort of debate within the legal profession so on the one hand um, if you can lawfully bring a case yes. uh, for um, whatever action, cause of action it is that you want to do, then. Ordinarily, as lawyers, we'd think that that was okay. Yeah. But what's happened is that this has been recognized as being abusive. Yeah. And we have some generic, universal principles, which as a, as lawyers, we all subscribe to, so that we should uphold constitutional principles and the rule of law and the proper administration of justice, that we should uphold public trust and confidence in lawyers and the legal profession. Yeah. Uh, that we act with independence, that we act with honesty, that we act with integrity. And if you put those uh, obligations together, sometimes that can come into conflict with uh, what the client wants. So obviously, it's not in the public interest to silence debate in a democratic society. And so that's an improper purpose. So whilst it may be technically lawful to bring the action. It becomes unprofessional for a lawyer to do so. Yeah. And so we're starting to see uh, cases uh, brought on this and it's, it's causing immense harm throughout the world. So it was a sort of phenomenon that started in America, but is now spread as far afield as um, India and the Far East, as well as into Africa. And it tends to be big Western companies or um, oligarchs who are bringing these actions to silence uh, dissent and criticism uh, of their behaviors. And obviously, in a democratic society, you have a duty and obligation to hear all shades and colours of opinion. Yeah. And while, if it's not a false um, allegation, then in those circumstances you should be allowed to say it and members of the public should be allowed to make up their mind. And so yeah. we're getting into this quite sophisticated area of what is the motive or what's the predominant motive in bringing cases. Yeah. And we're in this really transitional stage. So as as I say, you've got two camps and you've got people in the middle. And this is a universal problem, which is recognized by, you know, bars, legal regulators, uh, governments, and also, um, I think, by uh, practicing lawyers as well. And we are seeing an evolution of a new standard, which will, I think, eventually prevent uh, people acting in cases which are really um, a proxy for silencing criticism.
0: Do you think um, it's time for the UK to reform defamation laws again, to make make a stronger case, to avoid these types of cases being brought forward?
1: I think that it's not necessarily time to reform defamation law again. Um, and the reason I say that is that these slaps are being used in all sorts of other ways. So we're seeing lawfare. So we are seeing meritless defamation cases or very limitedly yeah. beneficial defamation cases brought but we're also seeing um, issues relating to uh, the criminalization of individuals so uh, allegations that are made which are um, uh, spurious, but are intended to divert, distract and, uh, and take up valued resource, uh, from usually a lesser wealthy and a lesser, uh, someone in a lesser position. So usually there's a power imbalance when these slap cases where one person has, uh, is as rich as creases and really the cost doesn't affect them, and somebody else who really can't afford to retain a lawyer. And uh, so we're seeing a lot of additional cases in confidentiality, in copyright, in data protection, uh, and all sorts of other areas. And uh, it is one of the hot topics. And, of course, you know, it affects lawyers around the world because it's an evolving global trend. And so coming together at the IBA to be able to discuss these with you know, bars, regula- legal regulators, experts in the field, and perhaps some government people as well yeah. is really important. And you get to hear all sides of the argument, and you can have your own view about what you think the right outcome is.
0: Yeah. So, what can um, what can people do if they're being, um, you know, threatened with the, with a slap action, and and they feel like they have to cave in and, and publicize an apology yeah. <laughs> online?
1: Yeah, I um, mean I think that uh, the best thing to do with slaps is if you think that someone is being over aggressive uh uh, or is um so some of the indicia that we have are you know um sending correspondence with uh restrictive labels that are, are intended to intimidate but are inaccurate so yeah. a very obvious example would be strictly private confidential uh, not for publication well that's meaningless if you're sending a letter of threat yeah. to uh, a defendant yeah. uh, particularly an individual who's not legally advised um you may well be sed- suggesting that that is a matter of law in your letter. In fact, you probably are. And therefore that has been highlighted as one of the uh, multiple abuses that we see. And so uh, obviously anyone who receives a letter of that kind uh, isn't constrained uh, to keep it private or to uh, not publish it. And indeed often um, one of the things that uh, people do now is to publish those very letters people can see how aggressive and attacking people are, and uh, making, you know, unduly aggressive, intimidating threats. So threatening a lawsuit, which it's known, will bankrupt the other side uh, or claiming remedies that you wouldn't be entitled to. So you may, for example, uh, seek an apology or retraction of an allegation, which you may not be able to get as a matter of law. Um, Also, we've seen people sending excessive numbers of letters to people. So if you've got one claim, it would be normal to target... You know the appropriate defendants, but what we're seeing is these letters are being uh, sprinkled around like confetti, and the idea is to is to chill down debate so yeah. that people are concerned that if they talk about these things, that they will be uh, perhaps uh, uh, prevented or will be sued down the road, and so that's one of the issues that we're seeing. And of course, once you get into the action, there's the cost. So, you know, it is not unusual to see uh, the claimant in a slap or a lawfare kind of case uh, have maybe a A team of eight lawyers and the defendant, uh, because they can't afford a lawyer, is on their own in person. And, you know, yeah, it's tough and it's an inequality of arms. And, of course, um, it is a... It is, I think most people would think inappropriate because the theory is, uh, particularly in the common law system, that you bring all shades of evidence and anything that's relevant and you're equally equipped to place the arguments before the court. But where you have that inequality uh, and you've got sort of eight lawyers on one side and uh, an unqualified person on the other side, that clearly isn't going to happen. And so it's about redressing the balance and restoring public confidence that the judicial system works for everybody, whether you're so rich or whether you're so poor.
0: Definitely. And obviously the SR is looking at kind of the firms drafting these types of aggressive letters and that kind of stuff. So I'm guessing some, some of them are being investigated, I think. So I'm guessing we're going to start seeing some regulatory action Probably
1: next year. Um, Yeah, I mean, we've already got an investigation in the UK, but this is a global problem. And so we're seeing it, uh, you know, the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority in the UK is perhaps in the forefront and the vanguard of this. The Bar Council in the UK is in a much more regressive place. Um, And we're also seeing other regulators in Europe and uh, around the world start to become interesting uh, in these issues as the phenomenon appears within their own jurisdictions and their own national courts, and they're starting to try and address them too.
0: Last question. Uh, So obviously you've been practicing across media law, freedom of speech and human rights for a really long time now. So um, could you pick out one thing that has changed uh, out of all your recognitions in these areas um, you know, could you pick out one thing that's changed um, for, for the better since the start of your career and one thing that you see has gone backwards?
1: I think the thing that I'm very pleased with is about um, the decriminalizing of consenting adult gay love. Uh Effectively decriminalizing homosexuality, yeah. um, people are who they are and we should appreciate them for who they are, not what we would like them to be yeah. or some people would like them to be. And we've seen decriminalization occur uh, in a sort of fairly progressive way. And I think it's one of those cases that over time we will see uh, the need for those cases uh, not to be brought anymore because everywhere will tolerate uh, gay folk. And on the other side of things, I think one of the retrograde things is, and it really follows on from that slaps and lawfare, um, because people have been chilled down from uh, behaving uh inappropriately, at least in some jurisdictions from uh, these meritless claims. And we are seeing now the targeting of not only our clients, which was a phenomenon for some time, but now also lawyers. So, for example, uh, the Secretary General of the UN recently um Uh, referred uh, to the case of Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong and um, uh, the fact that his lawyers had been intimidated, followed, Mm -hmm. uh, and that their emails had been hacked and that they'd been impersonated. Um, And this sort of builds on a, a trend. So we'd seen Turkey starting to bring regulatory claims against individual lawyers who... Uh, were defending uh, opponents of the state and they were essentially eliding the independence of the lawyer with the client's interests. And so they decided to target the the lawyers. And one of the things that that does is then makes it very difficult for lawyers to defend. And I think this targeting of lawyers Is a growing phenomena and it is one of the priorities for the International Bar Association Human Rights Initiative uh, and Institute because it is so all-pervasive and it's happening and springing up all over the world and unless we stamp on it quickly there are going to be lots of lawyers banged up in jail uh, and that's going to be a real problem. Mm. In fact I was interested to see one guy who has been in jail quite wrongly uh, here at the IBA in Paris (laughs) and I said to him it was uh, good to see him not in his prison striped uniform (laughs) for
0: sure (laughs) imagine well wow, Mark thank you so much uh, it's been so lovely to have you on uh, I really appreciate you taking the time despite the really busy week you've had uh, and um, yeah to the listeners uh, we're on Spotify Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, and we'll be back next week for another episode thank you so much
1: thank you Megan you've been listening to Council Culture the Business of Law podcast brought to you by Byfield Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again next week where we'll be discussing some more of the biggest stories in the legal sector.